good? All right, guys, as they're kind of wrapping that up, let me go ahead and get started. So today we are starting a, I say it's part two of our previous series that we did. Um, guys, my clicker's not working here, so I guess you need to click back there at the back. So if you go to my, it works now? Will it work now? Okay. Uh, so um, we are starting a, it's like part two of our, of our first series that we did. We did a series called Confronting Christianity, and uh, we finished it last week. And now we're beginning part two of our series entitled Embracing Jesus. And I decided to call it that because it's not enough to simply just have our questions answered. We covered a bunch of questions in the first part of the series, Confronting Christianity. We, talk, we talked about different questions people have about the Christian faith. And at some point, though, if those questions serve as obstacles for you to come to know Christ, at some point you've got, you've got to move past the questions and truly embrace Jesus personally. And so that's what this series is about. So last week, Chris addressed the question, how can a loving God allow so much suffering? And at times, it's good for us to look at principles about why there is suffering in the world. But sometimes it's good for us to see stories of how Jesus just healed people. I love the, how the, this, this wasn't actually planned, but you know, we, discussed, we, just, we, we talked about how, um, how can a good God allow suffering last week. And today we're talking about Jesus as healer. And so it's like the other side of that coin. And uh, interesting how that just worked out in the planning of these series. But today's talk is entitled Jesus as the Healer. And when Jesus healed in the Gospels, sometimes he healed physically, but sometimes he healed someone spiritually, like casting out demons. Now today's story is one of the, the most famous stories in the Gospels. So the disciples are in this boat with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. And suddenly there's a storm that whips up, and there's water coming into the boat. And Jesus, though, is asleep during the storm. And the disciples go, and they wake him up. They jostle him in the boat, and they're in a panic. And they say, you know, Master, Master, we're perishing. And they're freaking out. And Jesus rebukes the storm, but he also, and he calms the sea. But he also rebukes the disciples for their lack of faith. And so they arrive on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and uh, here's a map. It's really more like a lake. They call it a sea, but it's more like a big lake. And um, we, we went to Israel a couple years ago. My wife and I with some people here at TBC, and we stayed right close to this uh, lake of, they call it Lake of Gennesaret in their, uh, in their vernacular, but we call it the Sea of Galilee. And it's like a large lake, pretty large body of water there in, in northern Israel. And one side, so the side on the left-hand side, you see Magdala, which is where we stayed in a hotel right there on the, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. That is where they believe that Mary Magdalene was from. That's why it has that name, Magdala, it's, it's called there. And, uh, and so that's more like the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. The other side of the sea is known as the Gentile side. This will make more sense as we go throughout our story today, or the non-Jew side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, in Luke chapter 8, uh, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 8, and we'll be looking at a story here, a famous story in the Bible. If you're new to the Bible, this is a pretty crazy story. And so Luke chapter 8, verses 26, we start there. It says, then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is going to be across the sea like I talked about, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. 
So it's plural, not just a demon. He had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. So right out of the gate, the scene is set. This is a pretty intense environment. And so first for the disciples, think of this situation from the disciples' perspective. First, they're in a storm on the sea, and they're white-knuckling it on the side of the boat, and they're, they're panicking, and then Jesus calms the, the storm, and they get to the other side, and I'm sure they think, like, okay, that's over with. The day is going to go much better from this point forward, and then they run into this guy, and they see this guy who's demon-possessed, wearing no clothes, and he's the guy that lives among the tombs. Now, it says here, when you study the Bible, I want you to look at every single word, because they all have great meaning. And it says he is from the city. He's a man from the city. So we often forget, I think, the humanity of people that are in the Bible. So that means he's from the city. That means he, he grew up with friends. He had parents who probably loved him. He probably had some brothers and sisters. It wasn't too common to have only one child in a family back then. Many, they'd have many children much of the time. And so this man had a story in this town but now he's living in total isolation from people. He lives among the tombs. And we know people don't typically hang out in graveyards, do they? That's not a typical thing. Now, if we know someone who did this, we would know something isn't quite right. And that's what's true about this man. So other gospels tell us this man was so violent. In the book of Mark, we see a more fleshed out version of this story And it says, this man was so violent that people couldn't even pass by him without him trying to injure those people. People knew to stay away from the graveyard. They would try to bind him with chains, and he would break those chains. In the the book of Mark, we learn that every day and night, this man would scream out in agony. So just imagine that. You're on a journey, and you just hear this man screaming from the tombs, the graveyard. And he would pick up sharp rocks to cut himself as these demons tried to destroy him. So what's interesting is whenever you go to Israel and see this area, uh, our tour guide showed us these. We weren't this close to these tombs, but in Israel, it's not a very, there's not a lot of dirt in Israel. It's a lot of limestone, a lot of rock. It's 95% limestone. So here when someone dies, we dig into the soft earth and we bury them in the soft earth. But in Israel, there's not a lot of soft earth around. So when someone died, they would have to bury people in these like carved out stone tombs. And uh, so close to this area, there is a little hill, there's a big hill, and you can see it from our bus as we're driving by, and there's like these, these jagged rocks. And in that area is where these tombs were found. And so what's interesting is you go there today, and you can see, yes, that's right where these tombs have been located, where this man is hanging out with the dead. And this is where this is taking place. And this is the same area being talked about here in the text. And so we see all the signs of demon possession in this story. Disregard for personal dignity. So the guy's running around naked. That's not very common. Number two, there's social isolation. He is finding shelter in these caves instead of a house. Um, The demons have control of his speech. And he has extraordinary strength. So look at uh, the next verse, verse uh, 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and, and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded 
he meaning Jesus, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So when this man sees Jesus, what does he do? He falls down. He cries out and he falls down. Now, who is speaking? Is it the man or is it the demon? Well, we can assume it's the demon because he says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? So Jesus had already commanded these demons to come out of this man, and now the demons are responding to him, responding to Jesus. Now, in previous stories, the Jewish leaders don't know who Jesus is. The disciples have a hard time knowing who Jesus is. But these demons seem to know exactly who Jesus is. So I think a lesson for us that we can learn here is that knowing who Jesus is and worshiping him are not the same things. The demons know full well who Jesus is. The book of James talks about this, that even the demons believe that Jesus exists. Even the demons believe that Jesus is God. They will affirm that, but it says that they shudder because they know the coming judgment for them. So Understanding who Jesus is, like in a, at a factual level, is not the same thing as worshiping him, loving him, honoring him as God, glorifying him as God. So these demons, they don't, they don't worship Jesus or love Jesus or trust Jesus, they, but they know who he is. So agreeing that Jesus is God, not the same thing as saving faith, that's true for us as well. Look at verse 31, or I'm sorry, verse 30. It says, Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, these demons, they seem to know their, their final destiny of judgment that God's going to bring upon them. So they beg Jesus here. They say, please don't destroy us. Please don't throw us into the abyss. There's too much to get into about what that means as far as end times type stuff. But they know their coming judgment that, that God will bring upon them. But they say, please don't destroy us in the final judgment yet. So they know they're in punishment, but they want to try to negotiate with Jesus. And so this man doesn't have just one demon, but he had demons, plural. And when Jesus asks his name, he says legion, because many demons had entered into this man. Now a legion in the Roman army could mean up to six thousand soldiers. So we don't have any idea like how many demons have, have, have entered into this man's life, but we know it's a lot. There's more than one. So I want to pause here and discuss. I know that whenever you, um, when you first hear these kind of stories in the Bible, especially if you're new to Christianity, maybe you're a new believer, maybe you're not yet a Christ follower, but when you hear these kind of stories, you think to yourself, okay, that seems really far-fetched. I, I can't really believe in a God who I don't believe in this whole idea of, of like demons and that there's a Satan, a real, a real Satan, those kinds of things. Um, I believe that it is real. I believe the Bible shows us, the Bible pulls the curtain back and we can see into all of the inner world of what evil looks like. And what I would say is that it, we don't typically have a problem with the idea that there is such a thing as evil. That's what we discussed last week. Why is, all there, this, why is there all this evil in the world? And so most of us don't have a problem admitting there's all this evil in the world, but where we struggle is when we see in the Bible stories of stories about Satan or even stories about the demonic like you see here. 
And so I think for, for some reason we question and doubt when we talk about these, these beings that could be behind some of the things that we see in our world. I think we like, we like rational explanations for things. We like there to be a scientific explanation for things that we encounter in this world. And so we label everything. If we encounter someone like this in our world, we label everything just a disorder or a medical problem. And listen, I'm not arguing against that. Sometimes it is those things. But we also can't discount the demonic, as the Bible shows us here. If this, if, if this story shows us anything, it's that Jesus sees into a world that you and I cannot comprehend. The writer of a book I read recently talked about this as an analogy. She used the example of the Lord of the Rings. And I know it's, this is an old illustration, but um, when Frodo puts on the ring, sometimes, of course, he disappears, but he also is able to see sometimes into a world the evil that he's fighting against. And the ring gives him this like spiritual sight, almost like night vision, where he can see things he couldn't see before. This is kind of what I think, obviously, Jesus would be able to do that. We can't do that, of course. But Jesus always knows who he's up against. And we can't always see there's this world that exists that is behind much of the evil in our world today. But this is what Jesus sees. And Jesus sees that in this man. And he calls it out of me. He calls these demons out of this man. So we're not able to see it. We see evil, but we don't see the forces that are behind it. But I think we have to acknowledge its reality. Look at verse 32. It says, Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there, was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So now the demons are negotiating with Jesus, and they want to enter into these pigs that are on the hillside. And so Jesus, it says, gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake, and they drowned. Now remember, this is not a Jewish area, but a Gentile area. So what animal was considered unclean by the Jews? Pigs, yes. Now, we would never see this herd of pigs on the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. It wouldn't be over there. It's on the Gentile side, the non-Jew side. So these demons, they beg Jesus, if you're going to cast us out of this man, then please let us go into the pigs. It's like the demons are just bent on destroying life. And so if they can't destroy this man, they're saying, like, we want to destroy something you've created. So they want to go into these pigs and take these pigs down the bank and into the, into the lake so, they'll, so that they'll drown. So you might ask the question, like, why is Jesus negotiating with demons? Well, here's what we know. It wasn't time for final judgment yet, but why would he allow them to go into these pigs? Well, some think it was to show that this man was finally freed from what had been tormenting him for years from these demons. Others think it's to show how much he was freed from. That when these demons enter the pigs, like in mass, that it would, it would show how much evil was, 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 was brought down on this man with these demons. And listen, I don't know how demon possession work, works. I'm no expert. I'm not sure if it's got to be like one demon for one pig, or if, it's, if the demon said like, hey, you take these 20 pigs, and I'll take these 20 pigs. We'll run them off this cliff. I'm not sure how this whole thing works, right? But either way, this man is freed from a lot. We know that from the story. Again, I want to show you how you can trust the Bible and what it says is true. 
it's amazing how when you go visit this part of Israel, and I told you about how when you come on the north side of the, the Sea of Galilee, which is you see there in the mountains in the, in the distance, that's the north side over there, and you're on your bus, you're coming through, and the, and the tour guide says, hey, right here, this would be, these cliffs would be where the, the, um, the tombs would be located for, the, for this man we talk about, the Gerasene demoniac. Then you go a little bit further, and you see this kind of steep embankment, and they believe that the sea was even closer to the, that embankment um, earlier on, because of earthquakes, it could have shifted some. But it wasn't so much a cliff, but more like the steep embankment where they believe that right here is where this thing would have happened. Where the tombs are right there, this man was seen by Jesus, the disciples are with him, and then these pigs are there on the hillside, and then they're running to, they run down into the, into the Sea of Galilee off this embankment that's close by this area. And so you see, I think, how the evidence, just more evidence that the Bible, I think, is true. When you, when you go to this a place like Israel, and you see like, oh, right here is where they think that happened. And you see the tombs, you see the cliff, or the steep slope right into the, into the lake. And you see it right there. And so look down with me at verse uh, 34. It says, when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. So these herdsmen, when they see what happens, they're frightened and probably angry. I mean, I'd be mad too. That's a lot of, that's a lot of wasted bacon. They just ran off the, that cliff, right? Now, they flee. So the herdsmen, they flee, and they go tell everyone they see. And notice it says the herdsmen are afraid. When they see this man sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, that's when they're afraid. They're afraid when he looks normal, because they're like, we're so used to this guy not being normal. He looks normal now, and so now they're afraid of what's taking place here. So they would normally avoid this man or ignore him, but now he's been healed, so they're not sure what to do with him now. So he's normal. They're not sure how to handle that. So look down at verse uh, 37. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So they're not just afraid of the, demon, the formerly demon-possessed man, but they're also afraid of Jesus after what he just did. So they ask Jesus to leave, and surprisingly, Jesus says yes, and he leaves this area. And the demons, though, are begging Jesus to be sent into these pigs, but now the man who is free from those demons is now begging to come with Jesus and to go with Jesus and the disciples. But what does Jesus do? It's a surprising response. He sends him back home, and tells him to share his story. Now, why would Jesus do that? Well, you see, if he stays with Jesus, and he goes in back into the other side of the Galilee, everyone, no one knew this man over there. And they would be like, oh, this is just, we don't know the guy's name. This is just a random guy, some new guy that's not following Jesus. They wouldn't know the power of this story if he had gone back to where he didn't know anybody. But Jesus says, I want you to go back home and tell people your story of what you've been freed from. Because people, there's power in that story. Because people would look at him and say, oh, we know who you used to be, and we can see you now, 
there's been this miraculous transformation. I mean, you've met people before in your own life, I would imagine, that, that had a crazy story, and you maybe knew them before Christ, and you see them after Christ, and you're like, that is a transformation that can only be explained by God. That is the story of this man. And Jesus wants that story being told back in his hometown, right there. And so how does the man respond? Well, he goes home, he tells everyone what Jesus did for him. If you remember, the first few verses told us that he was from the city. But his demon possession drives him away from people and into isolation. He's living alone among the tombs. And now that he's healed, where does he go? He goes back into the city. He's no longer isolated. He's no longer alone. He now has restored, some restored friendships. People, people used to know him. They know him in that same way once again. And uh, so Rebecca McLaughlin, she writes this. When Jesus exercises demons, he's not going on a witch hunt, casting problematic people out. Instead, he's on a search and rescue mission, bringing hurting people in. So he wasn't just set free from demons, but he was set free from all that came with it. And we see that in this man's story. Now, when you look at what comes before and after the story, it appears that the whole purpose of Jesus was to go across the Sea of Galilee and to set this man free. Because Jesus says, let's go to the other side of the, of the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and they get in the boat, they have the storm, they encounter this man on the, on the, on the seashore, they had this whole thing happen that we just talked about. Then they get back in the boat and they go, they go back to the other side, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It looks like the whole purpose of Jesus was to go set this one man free and then go back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And I think this was not a random miracle for Jesus, but it had great purpose because he wants to show the disciples that he came not just for the Jew, but he came for everyone and I think the disciples have to see this because they're going to be the ones that are going to have to go share with the Gentiles one day the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Now, before we go any further into this story, let's dive a bit deeper into the topic of pigs. Because in the Old Testament, God commanded the Israelites to never touch a dead pig and never eat any part of a pig. Now, the question is why? Well, all the Bible tells us is that the Bible, God gave the law in the Old Testament in the book of uh, Exodus and beyond, and, and we know that God said the Israelites could not eat any animal that had a divided hoof or does not chew its own cud, which is too gross to define for you right now. I won't do that for you before lunch. But um, pigs have a divided hoof, and they don't chew their own cud, so that was why God said they couldn't eat pigs, among other animals as well. Now, we can kind of understand, when you really think about what pigs are as a creature, they're a bit nasty when you really think about it. Uh, I was raised on a little bit of a farm in Virginia, and my grandfather had some pigs when I was really young. And I remember I would stand um, in this barn where these pigs would just, like, fester in their own filth, and I would take dried corn cobs and just chuck them into the pig, the pig barn and just watch them go after the, this corn. They'd fight over it. And they're just like living in their own slop, right? They just look disgusting. And they just, all they do is they eat, and they just, they, have, they make weird noises. And they just look like, they're just very, very dirty animals. Now, if you've never eaten pig meat, and you see a pig for the first time, you probably wouldn't say, 
Yeah, I want to eat that. Probably wouldn't say that. They look disgusting. In Israel today, people, if you're Jewish, people still don't eat pig meat today in Israel. It's considered they don't do it in their religion. Same is true for Muslims. They don't eat pork as well. Now, when you go, when you're in Israel and Jerusalem, you go to the hotel and every part of your being is craving bacon, you will not find any bacon on that breakfast buffet. We were there back in 2022, and we had to stay twice as long because we got COVID over there. And after 21 days of being in Israel and never having bacon, when I got home, I craved bacon. I craved the smell, the taste, everything about bacon. If they had a bacon-flavored Gatorade, I probably would have bought it, right? And that sounds disgusting, but I probably would have bought that if they had that. So it's interesting that pigs seem so disgusting on the outside, but they taste so wonderful and magnificent, and we know that. So there's a really funny quote by a guy named Andrew Wilson. He makes this observation. He says this, bizarrely, if you were, is that a word? He's a British guy, so he can say words like that. Uh, bizarrely, if you were to create a small spectrum from the vilest stench to the most enticing aroma, pigs would find themselves at both ends of it, depending on whether it was before or after they died. How could something that smells so bad when it is alive smell so great when it isn't? How can death transform something from filthy and untouchable to aromatic and delightful? Now, hold that thought. So again, we don't know why God said some animals were clean and some were unclean, but in the New Testament, all this would change. There's a really crazy story in Acts chapter 10. While Peter is in this moment of prayer, he uh, sees this vision that God gives him with all these unclean animals on this sheet that's lowered down in this vision. And he hears God say these words to him. He says, God says, rise. He says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter comes to realize this vision is not just about food, but he understands the vision in two ways that God was allowing these food laws to go away, but in addition, that God wanted the gospel to go to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Because no longer were, 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 what, God, what people called common could be called unclean, and that would go, that'd be for the Gentiles as well. So the Israelites would no longer see certain foods as unclean if they were a Christian now, and that also meant they wouldn't see certain people as unclean. That'd be the Gentiles. And so Peter becomes the first apostle to preach the gospel in mass to all these Gentiles, and he saw many saved, up to 3,000 people in the first part of the book of Acts. So if the unclean animals are symbolic of unclean people, that's all of us, then we can also say this. Death, in our case, the death of Christ, has taken that which was filthy and untouchable and made us aromatic and delightful by the grace of God. So pigs and Gentiles occupied the same place in the Jewish mind. Both were considered unclean. Whenever we understand that, we start to see ourselves in the demonized man living among the tombs. When you hear a story like this, you can't, we often don't equate ourselves with the most extreme versions of evil that we see in the scriptures. We see this man, he is he is unclean. He is impure. He's an outsider. He's unable to be around the people of God. He's surrounded by death externally and internally. 
He's living in shame without any hope. Apart from Jesus, that's exactly who you and I are. We're just like that man. This man meets Jesus, the healer, and not only does Jesus set him free, but he humiliates these demonic forces that occupied this man. That's what he offers to you and I. He offers you and I the same thing. If you recall what the demons first said to Jesus when they encounter him, they say, you know, what have you to do with us? And I wonder how many here have asked that question. What have you to do with me, Jesus? Why are you bothering with me, Jesus? You know I'm too deep in sin. Maybe you've had that conversation with with God yourself. And asking God questions like, you know, what have you to do with me? Why would you ever pursue me? And just like the townspeople in the story, you just want Jesus to go away, leave you alone. But Jesus isn't in the business of leaving people alone. That's not what he does. He wants to set us free. And he wants to heal us spiritually just like he healed this man in the story. So whenever we think of healing, we often think of just physical healing, and that's it. And we forget about the whole spiritual side component of things. Um, so when someone in your life or in my life gets sick or goes to the hospital, we, we instantly go to, and we, and we should, we need to pray for this person, pray for healing, and that's a really good thing for us to pray. But we forget about the spiritual component of healing that Jesus wants to offer us as well. Around Christmas time, on December 23rd, uh, my wife and I got a phone call from my brother-in-law, her brother, and the call was telling us that Courtney's dad had had a heart attack and said he was headed to the hospital in Fort Worth, and we think he's going to be okay, but when you hear heart attack, you think, okay, this is never a small thing. And so we jump to action. We think, okay, we got to go. We're going to go see him anyway for the holidays, but we decided to go a few days earlier. So the 2030 enters the hospital, already having had a, a they call it a mild heart attack, if there is such a thing as that. And uh, he's in the hospital. So he spends uh, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. We get there, I think, on um, Christmas Eve, and we see him on Christmas Day in the hospital, and he has surgery the day after Christmas. It's going to be a triple bypass surgery, so a big deal. And uh, whenever you see someone that you love in a place like that, just so vulnerable to the circumstances, and you're in a hospital for several days throughout the Christmas holidays, and you see these, these uh, doctors and nurses working tirelessly as they care for patients in a place like that. When you're in a place like that for a few days, it's always a reminder that um, this is going to be all of us one day in some, in some sense. We're reminded that no one really escapes death physically. Now, so far we've, we've received good news about our dad and his recovery. He's doing okay in his recovery time. But one day we're going to get a phone call that's going to have a different ending. That's going to be true for all of us. That in the end, the most important question about our lives for you and for me is, did we embrace Jesus as Savior? That's the most important question you have to wrestle with in this life. And the answer to that question will determine your eternity. And so um, we invite you each week 
to have conversations with us. If you're someone that doesn't know Christ or isn't following Christ yet, we invite you to come to know him and surrender and personal relationship with him. You can, you can pray to him and, and ask him to be part of your life and confess your sin to him and decide to place your faith and trust in him for eternity. He offers that kind of relationship to you. He wants to heal you, not just physically, but also spiritually. Rebecca McLaughlin says it like this. If there are evil forces in this world, we need an overwhelming, demon-crushing, darkness-killing champion. We need someone who will separate us out from darkness and wrap us up in light. We need the doctor who can heal our bodies and our souls, the doctor who can take our pain, the doctor who can raise the dead. Jesus died almost 2,000 years ago, but his scarred, healing hands reach out for you and me today if we will only come to him. You guys are going to go to your breakouts. If you're new and don't know where to 